We have Eric with us again to, uh, this time. Uh, Eric, if you'd like to go ahead with your questions. Okay, thank you, Donna. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, all right. Uh, hi, Tom. Hi, Eric. So, um, my question is about the relationship between the physical body and the consciousness. I guess it's uh, similar to Vanessa's question in that sense. Uh, when neuroscientists perform brain scans on people who deal with very negative and dysfunctional thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, they often find physical causes. For example, there's a case study of a nine-year-old boy who attacked a little girl on the baseball field for no particular reason and was drawing pictures of himself hanging from a tree and shooting other children. A brain scan showed a cyst the size of a golf ball occupying the space of his left temporal lobe. When the cyst was removed, his behavior completely went back to normal, and he, be and he became a sweet, loving boy. Well, these types of findings confuse me. How do we know whether our thoughts, emotions, and behavior are actually a clear expression of our quality of consciousness and not just caused by constraints of the rule set? It seems possible that a person who exhibits horrible behavior might actually be a very evolved consciousness dealing with brain damage or some other physical issue shouldn't each player receive clear and accurate feedback on the quality of his consciousness in order to have an effective learning experience the fact that the state of a person's physical body has such a great impact on the way they feel and the type of behavior they exhibit makes it very unclear whether it has anything to say at all about the quality of their consciousness well the quality the consciousness itself is not necessarily terribly confused, at least not at the IUOC level anyway, because yes, the body, let's say, has that cyst in it. And because it has that cyst in it, the, that puts constraints on what the conscious can do. So that little boy, because of that cyst, can't feel happy and cheerful and, you know, and, and caring for other people because the part of him that supports that, the part of his biology, the part of the rule set that supports that ability is damaged or missing or uh, somehow stopped by, the, by that cyst. So now the consciousness doesn't mean the consciousness gets mean and wants to hang people. It just means that the consciousness loses control of that avatar to a certain degree. That avatar kind of goes off um, is less in their control than it was before. Um, for instance, another thing that's maybe even more obvious is if you have brain damage, you get in an accident and you get hit in the head and you have brain damage, and now you maybe don't have very good memory. Maybe you don't have any memory of things past. Uh, maybe you have a, you know, a speech impediment. Maybe you can't hear in one ear. You get all kinds of things because of that brain damage. And now your consciousness doesn't suddenly, you know, lose something. It's just that it has to play an avatar that can't do certain things, can't think certain ways, can't access its memory. And it has to play that avatar that way. Now, from the free will awareness unit's viewpoint, it just suddenly can't function the way it used to. So, so your IUOC has kind of a bigger picture. You know, it, it's, the, it's kind of the larger picture of this. But basically what our local consciousness is is a free will awareness unit. 
And the free will awareness unit pretty much thinks it is the avatar because it's only experienced, the avatar's experiences. So now suddenly when it has this change in its biology with a cyst or a damage from an accident or whatever, now that free will awareness unit is still feeling like, you know, go smile and be happy and, you know, give that little, you know, girl a kiss. But the avatar won't do that because the avatar can't do that because the biology blocks that. The avatar can't express that. So the consciousness doesn't know really, the, the free will awareness unit probably doesn't know what's going on at that point. It just has to deal with it. Well, there's lots of ways you can deal with things. And these things will present very challenging things to, to, the, free, to the free will awareness unit. It may not make the challenge or it, it might. You know, it could come to the conclusion of things aren't working the way they used to. So let me back off for a minute and find out why. Maybe I should go tell my parents that, uh, you know, something's wrong and I, I don't see things anymore. I get angry all the time and they can take me to a doctor and maybe get my cyst removed. You know, that might be a choice if you were aware enough. But if you're too young to be that aware, then that's hard to do. Your free will awareness unit just has to deal with it. So those things don't happen except in the margins, right? There's only one out of, you know, probably 500,000 children that get a cyst there that causes that problem, maybe only one in 5 million children. So these little things do happen and the system basically just lets them run out however they run out. And yes, the free will awareness unit now is suboptimal. It can't necessarily learn the kind of things it would have learned, but it has other choices to make. Maybe it needs to learn better how to control that angry behavior. It may need to realize that angry behavior is not the way it wants to act and it's not going to do that way and it has to develop control. You see, it's, it's hard to say. So some free will awareness units would gain from it, perhaps. They learn a lot of self-control in that where others wouldn't be able to do self-control because they just aren't that grown up yet. And they would then just, you know, act badly, yes, but not because the consciousness is has turned evil. It's just that the conscious now has an avatar that bites people and slaps people and gets angry for for its own reasons, you might say. So that's that's kind of what's going on. Yeah, no doubt the free will awareness unit is now off course but it still has choices. The choices now are maybe harder. In some cases, let's say they're too hard. Like this young boy, he was too young to maybe look back and see the bigger picture and start to develop uh, something else where if it happened to him when he was 18, he would have been old enough to back up and say, there's something wrong here. You know, I need some help. I need to, I need to uh, just not act that way though. That's the way I feel and start working on, you know, a plan B. So sometimes it's just that way. Sometimes a free will awareness unit just has a bad incarnation. It doesn't ruin it forever. That's just one incarnation. And it's not the consciousness that's turned evil that's going to make it evolve. It's just the avatar is hard to control. The avatar is kind of out of control and is not responsive. So it has to go through 
dealing the best it can with that. And it may be a, an unpleasant thing, but it's not really hurting the consciousness so much. You know, you can think of that. Let's say you, you got a, an elf and your elf was brain damaged somehow. You know, somehow the code, the code of that elf, you know, made them do things. And it was constantly being aggressive when you, di you didn't want it to be aggressive. You just say, well, let's go up and ask these people directions of where to go. And your elf goes up and pulls out its sword and kills them all. You know, and you're, oh, man, I didn't learn anything. I didn't get my directions. You know, don't do that. And so you tell it next time you say, put your sword down, put your sword down while it goes up and talks to people. You, you learn how to deal with it, right? You, you try to find a, a workaround. And that's what the free will awareness unit has to do. It has, has to find a workaround. So you may just have to finish your game with that defective elf. So you get a new game where you get a different, a different elf and say, well, good riddance for that elf. You know, that wasn't any fun. Well, that's just one, one game out of thousands. So it doesn't really ruin your life or, you know, uh, make you de-evolve or anything. It just gives you a really hard time where you don't learn the things maybe you'd hope that you would have learned, but you learn a few other things trying to deal with a cranky avatar. Actually, it's not cranky. It just has lost some of its functionality. So, so that's, that's kind of the way it goes. So the, the, system, the, the, the incarnation is not always optimal. Sometimes incarnations just go tough. You know, they just get really difficult and you have to deal with horrendous things like, um, what was the, uh, Reeves, Superman, uh, actor, you know, who falls off a horse and is paralyzed. He's a quadriplegic, can't do anything, but, you know, move his eyes and maybe his face. That's all he does. Well, that wasn't in his plan. No doubt that just happened. It's one of those accidents. And then he had to deal with it. So he could deal with it well, or he could deal with it poorly, but he can still, you know, he still has to deal with it. So I guess it's not necessarily true that, um, say if someone has, uh, psychological issues or emotional issues or behavioral issues, it's not necessarily true that, uh, working on his quality of consciousness is going to, uh, solve everything it might just be purely a physical problem is that right yes that is right it may be that way it may be a physical problem you know the the, the central nervous system is a hugely complex biological machine if you will and it can get quirky it's you know and you just have to work with those quirks so yes it may be that People who are depressed, let's say, they may just have a, a brain chemistry that does not produce enough neurotransmitters. And when you don't produce enough neurotransmitters, you get depressed, you get cranky. That's one of the symptoms of it. And it may not have anything to do with their quality of consciousness. It may just be an expression of their biology. Absolutely. On the other hand, if your consciousness is having trouble and your consciousness gets depressed just because it's full of fear okay now that that consciousness being full of fear may decrease the number of neurotransmitters in your body because the mind leads the body follows you see now you can improve your quality of consciousness and the depression problem just goes away so it can happen either way 
Yes. People who do awful things like this child, you know, gets mean and, and ugly doesn't mean that he's got a mean and ugly consciousness or that he's got a low quality of consciousness. It could be physical. It's this, it's this interplay of both things, the consciousness and the avatar have a lot of interplay. And that's one of the advantages of the system because there's such a rich set of experiences that are possible. If the avatar never could be quirky, then there's a lot of experiences that would never take place. So the fact that it's this interaction with a lot of uncertainty in the interaction is part of, is a, is a feature, not really a problem. It sounds like it can be a problem for individuals sometimes, but it also gives us uh, things to deal with, problems to solve, choices to make, you know, because some of them are positive too. You may be born with exceptionally long fingers, which makes you a really good piano player because you can stretch them out and hit those keys where somebody that got stubby little short fingers and they took lessons and lessons and lessons and they just never get very good because they keep hitting two keys at once. Maybe they got short fat fingers, makes it even worse. So there's an advantage, you see, but then somebody with short fat fingers may have an advantage doing something else, you know, that, that they get better at because they have real strong fingers. And maybe they're better at shoeing horses or who knows what, you know, taking lids off of, that are stuck on bottles, you know, it's hard to say, but there may be an advantage for every, for things and, you know, and disadvantages for things as well. So that's life. It gives you another set of choices. So it puts some randomness in your, in the, in the way of your consciousness to have to deal with it. I see. Yeah. Well, because neuroscientists these days are very materialistic. So any sort of psychological issue that someone may be dealing with, they tend to just blame it all on the brain. You know, they yeah. just, they say it's, it's because the brain is this way or that way. Right. Um, so I guess there is a truth to that. But yes, some, sometimes they're right. I see. Yeah, sometimes they're right. It is the brain that's doing that. And sometimes they can fix it. And other times they're wrong. And they give medicines, they do this, they do that, they do everything they can, and it doesn't make any difference because that's really not the problem. Or they just don't know enough about the brain yet. Or they can only, they can only ease symptoms, like talk about the, the, the uh, lack of, uh, of neurotransmitters. Okay, so they can give them uh, uh, you know, Prozac, which will increase the number of neurotransmitters, increases the serotonin that produces the, the neurotransmitters. Well, that gives that person symptomatic relief. You see, as long as they take that, now they have symptomatic relief. They're not as depressed as they were anymore. Medicine works, but it's just a symptom reliever. It's not, it doesn't fix the problem. Let's say the problem was a, was a low quality of consciousness that has a lot of fear. Okay, that's the problem. So now this person doesn't get off of the, of the medicine. If they do, the depression comes right back. You see, so there are ways of of fixing symptoms that don't fix problems. So medicine tends to do a lot of that if it's psychological. They can still change symptoms, but they don't fix the problem. And that's often a, a difficulty because medicines also have, um, you know, downsides. There's always a long list of negative things that come along with taking almost any medicine. 
So if you take a medicine that's just removing a symptom and it gives you another symptom, you have to be careful. You're not trading, you know, a lesser symptom for a bigger symptom. Right. Okay. Well, that clears things up. Thank you. Um, can I ask my other question as well? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. Um, my next question is on dream recall. Uh, do you have any good explanation for why we forget our dreams so quickly after waking up? And also, is there a purpose behind this or does it just happen to be this way as a result of how the system works or how the rule set works? I think it is this way. It's not this way because it's, it's uh, programmed to be this way. I think it's this way because how intent works. If you start focusing your intent on remembering your dreams, you will remember your dreams. But when you first wake up, if what you do is say, oh, what time is it? Am I late for work? Uh, you know, what do I have to do today? Let's see, what's first on my calendar? What's second? What's third? And what is there for breakfast? You know, am I going to be able to get something here? Or do I, I going to have to stop at the store on the way? And your mind just starts going on about all the things that have to happen. You know, you have to take a shower. You have to do this. You have to do that. If your intention doesn't specifically go and and uh, become interested in those dreams, if you don't have an intent that's interested in those dreams, then you don't you don't get them. So what you're not interested in tends to disappear. So I think that's the main reason that we don't get our dreams. Now, one of the ways that you can develop an interest in your dreams is by starting a dream journal. That's why when people start dream journals, suddenly they have more dreams that they can remember because keeping the journal forces them to have an interest in the dream. You can't get a journal and start writing in it unless you have an interest to get a journal and start writing in it. So that's, that's why that works. So I think it's just a matter of focus. If you in the morning, uh, first thing you do is just lie there without really getting up and starting to process your day. You just lie there and go back, you know, and kind of revisit your dream. Then that dream, you'll remember it real clearly. But if the first thing you do is pop up and get out of bed and stagger to the bathroom and brush your teeth and start planning your day, you probably won't remember even that you had any dreams. So I think it's just your intent and your focus is the, is the main is the main thing and it's just the way we are with everything you know if you don't focus or have any intent about what's going on in the office next to yours you'll never know because you'll never ask anybody about it you'll never inquire and you'll just be ignorant of that whereas if you're curious you'll inquire and you'll find out what's going on there so intention provides us with information that we don't get otherwise so you don't think it has anything to do with the fact that when we're dreaming, we're operating from the being level and the intellect is turned off? Well, that can be some of it. That can be some part of it, that you're operating at the being level and the intellect's not involved. But the reason the intellect's not involved is that the intellect isn't interested. <laughs> the intellect isn't paying any attention. The intellect can be involved if you have an intention for it to be involved. So it's, yes, that is part of the problem, but that's, that's part of the reason why, you know, your, in, your intent isn't on the dream because the intellect just doesn't care. It's not interested. Yeah, you have dreams, you don't have dreams, but who cares? You know, they don't mean anything anyway, or however you feel about it, then your intellect isn't interested in paying attention to them. 
But if you start thinking about your dreams and say, I really want to remember them because they're going to tell me how I am. That's a good view of me at the being level. And I really would like to remember and see how I act and the choices I make in those dreams. You'll start to remember them. Okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to work on keeping a dream journal then. Yeah, dream journal is the thing that works best for most people. And what they will do is after a dream, they will wake up because they have an intention. After a dream, I want to write it down. And they won't necessarily wake up in the morning and write down 10 dreams. They'll write them down as they have them. So it also, they learn to wake themselves up. They have a dream, they'll wake right up after the dream and write it down in their journal, go right back to sleep and doesn't disturb their sleep at all. Their intention just takes care of all of that. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I'll, I'll experiment with that. Thank yeah. you. All right. Thank you, Eric. We have Pally back again with us. Pally, it's nice to see you again. If you'd like to ask your questions, please go ahead. Thank you very much, Dana. Uh, can you hear me well? Yes. Okay. Hi, Tom. So my first question, which was also popular, as I saw, um, I have this idea that uh, there is a primary relationship in everyone's life at each life stage. We cannot really truly uh, we cannot really feel uh, truly fulfilled in life if we don't focus on building and improving understanding, intimacy and trust within that relationship. Other person or people in uh, this relationship are our primary teachers. Recognizing and working on this relationship has the biggest labor effect on satisfaction and happiness in our life. Sadly, <clears throat> many people tend to run away from the need to grow and change thanks to that relationship, so they focus on other projects. Uh, this often happens after they get exhausted after trying to change others in that relationship and not themselves. These projects uh, <clears throat> are other less essential or superficial areas of life where we feel good where we achieve the flow state because we can see much more clearly the connection between invested effort and results. There is more certainty and less uh, or no need to change oneself. So I have three questions to this topic. Does it make sense to see the primary relationship as the most important project and deliberately focus on it? Or is it better to focus, uh, to not focus on that relationship while being conscious of its importance? And how do we deal with uh, that sinking feeling of loneliness uh, when one person sees the importance of working on the relationship, but the other runs away towards other superficial projects? Okay. There were several questions in that one question. Um, first of all, let's say that, that um, this relationship is one based on caring and on love. If it's one based on caring and love, then it only takes one to love. It doesn't take two. In other words, you can love someone, and if that someone, let's say, is shallow or has a lot of fear and has a, a lesser capacity to love, that's okay. You just let them be however they are, and you love them just the same. You do things for them. Uh, you try to make them happy or whatever. And realize that they have limitations. Their capacity is only so much. That's okay. 
though, you can get along just fine and don't have that feeling of loneliness because when they say things or they brush you off or whatever, and you want to go into, into something deeper, you just have to let that be because you let them be however they are. You don't try to make them be what you want them to be. You let them be who they are and accept that as who they are and love them because that's who they are. See, if it's a need-based relationship, then that doesn't work so well. In a need-based relationship, you have needs and you're expecting uh, somebody else to fulfill those needs. And when they don't, then you feel lonely or put out or it's not working. Okay. So let's go back to the relationship that's based on love. If the relationship based on love is, is such that that uh, you can't, whether it's your capacity to love is not great enough or whether there's just not enough value in that relationship to make it worth your while, well, then maybe you need to change relationships. You see? So if you're in a, in a, relation, a relationship, let's say that's abusive to take one that's, that's more dramatic, well, you don't have to stay in that. Then you may love that person, but the right choice would be to move on, you know, go someplace else, start another relationship. You may still love that person forever, but it may not be a practical or good place for you to grow, for you to grow up in. So then you might want to change relationships. On the other hand, if the person is only mildly abusive, let's say they're all their abuse is just um, verbal in the sense that they are constantly complaining or constantly uh, unhappy about something or whatever. Well, that's okay. That's just the way they are. You can still give them a kiss and, you know, try to make them feel good when they can, but you can just accept them the way they are. They're grumpy. That may not be a big deal. You know, but if they hit you with a frying pan, you know, every every other day, then it's probably time to go, you know, probably time to go someplace else. That's not a good relationship. You need to get out of it. So it depends. Okay, so that's that's kind of part of your answer. All the rest of the things you said were exactly right on when you described this relationship. The reason we have this need to, to get in a deep relationship with somebody in every phase of our life you know, we want to have the best friend, you know, or we want to have a, a wife or husband, or we want to have somebody at work or our boss or somebody, our cousin or our mother or father, somebody that we're really connected to. And that's because we're driven to grow and to become. And as you said, relationship is, is really the core place where that happens. You can go off to uh, what you call other, other things, you know, where you're not required to give of yourself so much. You know, you go to work. Well, and you're an engineer and you do great work. So you build this wonderful bridge and everybody applauds and you get an award and, you know, maybe a, a raise. But it doesn't mean that you've, you know, that you don't have a lot of fear, that you don't have a huge ego, you know, that you're really a very evolved person. You're just pretty good at what you do as far as the engineering goes. But like you say, that's a diversion from those, from your growing up. I mean, it is you expressing your intellect in a profitable way, but this, we're here to grow up, not to make money. And we still have this need to connect with somebody at a very deep level, because that's where we have to deal with our ego and our fears is at that deep level, not the superficial level of designing a bridge and getting applause. That's all kind of superficial, not meaningful. 
So yes, we are all pulled toward a relationship. And if we don't have it, we feel lonely. That's kind of a feeling to, well, go try to develop such a relationship. But if we get into the relationship based on it's about us, then it doesn't work out so well. If we get into it based on it's about somebody else, then it still might not work out very well if that other person just has no capacity to love at all. But if they do have some capacity, generally you can work with it, even if it's a smaller capacity than what you have. You can still work with it. It's still all right. You know, the person, let's say, is just a chronic complainer. Well, you don't have to be upset about the complaints, even if they're complaining about you. You can just smile and say, yeah, that's the way it is. And, you know, go on about your stuff. It doesn't have to upset you. It can be something that you can deal with just fine. You got to let other people be who they are. Can't make them be anything else than what they are, and you can't help them grow up any. And the more you push at them to have them to help them grow up, the less likely it is that they'll grow up. So it's you're kind of stuck there, Polly, and that there's nothing you know, if you get in a situation and it's not working, there's just not much you can do about it other than either love them and let it go or change the relationship if that's impossible. So it's um, you know, particularly if it's a, a I love them and let them be who they are. That can be a very growing thing for you. In other words, let's say you do have a, a significant other and that significant other uh, is not very evolved and they complain a lot. All right, well, dealing with that in a positive way so that it doesn't make you grumpy, that's a challenge. And if you can meet that challenge, you're gonna grow up a whole lot because you're gonna have to offload your ego in order to meet that challenge. That challenge requires you to be a kinder, more giving person than it would be if your significant other never complained and always said nice things to you. That doesn't, that doesn't challenge you a whole lot. That just feels good. But when you're in a relationship that's difficult, there's the challenge for you to let that ego go. Don't let that pull you down. Don't let that make you upset or angry just because they said something that was rude to you. Just let it go. It's all right. You see? So those challenging ones can actually be the ones where you have the highest potential for growing up rather than the easy ones that just feel good. So there's advantages to both. Feeling good is nice. But we talked to Patricia about early on. You know, that's a good thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with feeling good. But you can learn a lot in tough situations that require you to grow up in order to deal positively with the situation. So I don't know whether I've answered all the questions that were in there or not, but if not, just keep asking them until I do. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Tom. I think that answered most of them, but uh, two other things popped up, if I may ask them. Okay. Um, the one thing is, um, it seems to me that uh, for us to grow up effectively uh, we need challenges but also if too much challenge is present um, we get stuck and somewhere i heard that uh, maybe the optimal uh, balance is 70 percent uh, uh, let's say something where we are comfortable and 30 percent of new stuff or challenges and I, where a struggle is uh, if i'm alone at uh, this project of uh, a relationship, I, uh, 
I usually I cannot uh, uh, cannot be joyful and happy uh, with that other person not trying. So yes, that's my ego. Uh, but how how do I then overcome? I mean, if it's uh, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I hear yeah. you fine. Sorry, because my my screen is stuck somehow frozen. So uh, what I'm asking is, uh, how do I deal with uh, somebody who is definitely worth trying, who has definitely capacity to love, but uh, uh, with whom I uh, sometimes uh, go into this uh, deep sadness uh, when I try to let go of my ego? That's... Okay, the deep sadness has to be. I mean, there's there's two different causes that the deep sadness might have. But both of them get cured by the same thing, and that is you have to let people be the way they are. Now, if somebody that you love is hurting themselves because they're not growing up, so they're doing the same old stuff that doesn't work out, well, that's a little sad, but only a little sad in the sense that, well, they are who they are. That's where they are in this in this growing up place, and they have to they have to live their life authentically the way they are. You can't skip them ahead. You can't help them see things, particularly if you're the one that's closest to them. You're probably the one that's least likely, you know, to, to help them out by something you say. You know, it's got to be more something you do. And what you do to help them is just give them more space that they need. Make them feel secure so that they can maybe take a, a risk to try growing up. And that may not work. Or it may take 20 years if it does work. But you just have to accept that and say that's the way they are. And that's okay. They have to do it in their own time. So the sadness can come from being sad for them because now they're constantly unhappy because of their fear. And you wish you could help them do something about that. But then you just have to let that sadness go and say, well, they are who they are. Me being sad that they are who they are is just not helpful. Because once you're sad, then you're no longer helpful to them. The way you help them is by being positive and giving them a, a safe place to grow up in. So when you get sad or you get depressed, now you are not only not helping them grow up, but you're making it harder for them to grow up. So then you become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So you just have to look at yourself and say, uh, I don't want to go there just the way they are. I need to accept that and learn how to live gracefully with that. So the next time I get insulted, I won't let it bother me. I'll just let it go. And the next time you get insulted, it will bother you, but a little less. And you'll say, oh, that hurt, but it's okay. It's just the way she is. And then the next time and next time it'll get less and less. And pretty soon you will get a whole lot better at, uh, not getting upset, not getting sad. And she will start to get better because she knows every time that you're upset and that you're sad and that makes her less likely to grow up. So you will actually help her growing up by you growing yourself up. So as long as there's enough potential in the relationship that there's parts of it that are good, then it's probably worth putting up with the parts that aren't so good and just using that as a, as a tool for your own growth. And you just have to have the intent to overcome it, have the intent not to be upset or not to be sad and to let her be the way she is and accept that. 
So it's a, it's a tough lesson, but you'll learn a lot, a lot faster. It's a great opportunity for growth. Great opportunity for growth. You don't get a lot of growth in a feels good environment. You get more growth than where you're challenged. So that's the positive thing about it. It gives you a lot of potential to grow up because when you can let enough ego go that you don't get sad and you always stay happy and you're always positive, then you will probably find that she's going to grow up some too. But if she doesn't, that's okay. You can like that. Well, I'm just saying she, I could say he or she or it or whatever doesn't matter. There's all kinds of relationships and the same thing holds for all of them. You know, they're not gender specific or even species specific. You know, they're just uh, about relationship with, any, with anything or anybody, you know, and it, it, uh, we have deep relationships with, with uh, mostly with family, mostly with significant others, because that's who we get so close to that their, their ego and our ego start to bump into each other. And it's those bumps that we get between the egos that provide us the challenge. And there's nothing you can do about the other person's ego. So you just have to learn to take those bumps and not make that part of the problem. Accept that and take it positively and make it part of the solution. Because that person actually knows when they're being negative. That person, let's say, just, again, just making up things that they, let's say, complain a lot. They actually know they complain a lot. They're aware of that. But in their mind, they feel justified because you're sullen and, and unhappy a lot because they complain a lot, which then justifies their complaining a lot because you're unhappy and sullen, you see. So if you don't react that way, if, they're, if they are constantly complaining, and you're not unhappy and sullen or depressed. You just smile and everything's fine and you accept the blame or you do whatever that is that diffuses the situation or you kiss him and tell him you love him anyway and that uh, you know, you'll do better next time. Whatever it takes to make it a happier situation, pretty soon they'll realize that they're being you know, negative, they're complaining and there's really nothing to complain about. And then that's their first opportunity to grow up a little, you see? So by you growing up, you help them grow up. So that could be, if you're somebody you love, then you want to help them. And your way to, the way you help them is given this, this safe space to be in where everything seems to be all right. And they will eventually get it. They'll say, wow, I'm negative and there's no reason. Thank but, you, Doctor. Well, if you're, you're negative because they're negative and they're negative because you're negative and it just doesn't ever seem to go anywhere. That's a problem. So somebody's has to change it. Somebody's got to step up and say, this is not functional. So then that somebody who is the one that's more grown up usually has to take, you know, has the challenge of getting rid of their ego, get rid of their fear. And the fear of course is that, you know, that I'm being taken advantage of, that I'm not getting the things that I should have that, uh, no, it's not the way I'd like it to be. Of course, the answer to that is get over it. Accept it the way it is and find happiness in the way it is. And then it'll probably get better. That that helps, Tom. Thank you very much. Uh, that really, that last part spoke to, to me very deeply. So 
And uh, in relation to uh, what you said that there are need-based uh, relationships and uh, log-based relationships, I'm struggling a bit here because uh, um, I'm also, let's say, a hobby psychologist. I, I, I learn a lot from uh, psychology theories and uh, they always uh, tend to look at uh, needs as something that is essential to our existence, of course, to our ego. And um, if I understand you correctly, uh, if somebody really drops his ego, uh, he then doesn't have any deficiency needs. I, I mean, in Maslow's uh, uh, pyramid of needs, there are all the uh, there are only deficiency needs, and then on the uh, very uh, very top, there is this need or to give to care, as I understand. Uh, basically, somebody without an ego doesn't have any deficiency needs. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, that's basically right. That's why people without egos are happy because mm -hmm. they don't find any deficiencies. They don't find any, uh, any negatives. They just find uh, opportunities, opportunities to grow, opportunities to give, and it makes them happy. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is the, that's the case. And the reason that psychology got stuck in that boat is because I guess it started with Freud. But basically, it starts with the way psychologists look at the world, and that is they look at the world experimentally. So if you if you take 10,000 people and you give them tests and you find out here's a here's a good solid bunch, you know, they're reasonably happy, they're reasonably successful, they're reasonably okay. So we'll we will label them good, healthy people in our society. Okay. And then that tells you then ones that aren't getting so long, then they have problems. But this group is the, is the group that we say don't have problems. It's not that they don't have any problems, but they're average. They're normal. Just have normal problems like everybody else does. So they're healthy. They're okay. Well, that's kind of the way psychology looks at the people. That's how Freud looked at people. You know, everybody has ego. Well, if everybody has ego and a lot of people are doing fine, then the ego must be a necessary part of the being. Well, that's not true. Everybody has ego because everybody is not very grown up. Everybody has more growth that they could grow or, uh, you know, higher quality that they could attain. That's why everybody has ego. And yes, ego is normal, but that doesn't make it a good thing. So yes, once you get rid of that ego and that fear, then you can still feel sad but usually only for a short period of time. That's just a fleeting, kind of a fleeting uh, thing. You don't even get sad very often because you know it just is the way it is. And you accept that. It's not really so much a sad thing. We get sad because we're not getting what we want. That's what tends to make us sad. We want, we need things and we're not getting them. We get sad. We don't have them. So, yes. Without that, without that fear, you're a happy person. No matter whether you're poor or, you know, live in a mud hut or whatever, you're a happy person. It's, uh, it's okay.